word anonymous. Un- what was that, Brother Ty? Unknown source, Brother Jesse. We were here. Same thing. Anyone from from this side, Brother Josh? Protect a source. That's good. That's good. You know, some definitions of the term anonymous include of unknown authorship or origin, not named or identified, lacking individuality, distinction, or recognizability. I mean, this term would seem rather prevalent in our current situation, considering we have to uh, wear a mask everywhere we go. You know, we are becoming anonymous. But yet, in some cases, it seems as though this idea of anonymity is becoming a foreign concept, especially when you, uh, when you think about our social media outlets, such as Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you know, places that you know, more or less feed on our own vanity and you know, helps us to try to make a name for ourselves. You know, they want us to be known by the masses. You know, oftentimes, when I hear the word being used, anonymous, I often think of organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, which was created to help people suffering from alcoholism find help and support their, and break their addiction. In fact, my own mom was actually able to find hope from AA, from AA in order to break her alcoholism, and you know, she was actually able to remain sober for about 15 years before the Lord took her on home. So they do help. Now, of course, I believe criminals prefer to maintain a sense of anonymity while perpetrating a crime, and so the term can have either positive or negative connotations between, uh, depending on the circumstance. But for this evening, our purposes of the word will be in the positive. More specifically, we're actually going to be discussing how we as believers should maintain anonymous faith in our day-to-day services. In fact, the title of tonight's message is Anonymous Faith. Now, allow me to clarify. When I say anonymous faith, I do not mean that we should be ashamed of our beliefs. We should never be ashamed of believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But rather, we should ensure that our focus is on the Lord in whom we believe rather than in ourselves. You know, think of anonymous faith like an anonymous gift. Have anybody received an anonymous gift before? Nobody? I have. I have. It's, it, was a, it was a surprise. It was pleasant. It was a blessing. But the idea, the emphasis is not on the person giving, but rather on the gift received. The same thing with our anonymous faith is not on us, but rather on who we believe. And to this point, we will, we will be looking at two examples within the Gospel of Luke, actually within the same chapter, Luke chapter 7, on how we too can allow our faith to speak volumes and yet we ourselves may remain unknown. Now, as you, find your, as you find your place in Luke chapter number 7, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our message. Our Heavenly Father, again, we just want to say thank you so much for blessing us today. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come to your house of worship. And I pray, Lord, that you will just open our hearts to the message, that your spirit will do a work here in our sanctuary, and that you will just give us a focus of mind as we get into your word And if there's anyone sitting within the congregation or anyone listening in through our video services who do not yet know Christ as their Savior, I pray that tonight will be the night that they receive Christ and become a child of God. Bless our evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how can or how should our faith be anonymous? 
Well, the first one is our faith should be anonymous through our testimony of Christ. Through our testimony of Christ. And this is actually seen through the example of the centurion who we find in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. So Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1, it says, Now when he, this is Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was not when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Now, as our students here at the church would be able to tell you, this is actually one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. Primarily for one reason, and that is Jesus' reaction to the centurion's faith. Look again in verse number 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Jesus marveled at the centurion. Now this term marveled comes from the Greek thalmazo, which means to wonder by implication to admire. So Jesus admired the centurion. Now of the 46 times that this term, that this Greek term thamazo is used in the New Testament, only three are actually used to describe Jesus. Number one is here in our passage in Luke, the parallel passage of the same account in Matthew chapter number eight, and in Mark 6, 6, when Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his countrymen at Nazareth. Now, I believe it is safe to say that Mark's use of the term can describe Jesus' wonder at the town folk's unbelief in him. You know, it's not to the point that Jesus was surprised at their response, but more of a disappointment, more of a wonder that they would not be willing to believe in him. While our passage here in Luke 7 can describe his admiration for the centurion's testimony. In fact, I often would imagine Jesus, you know, giving that nod of approval at this man's faith. Have you guys, you know what the nod of approval is, right? Whenever you're able to complete some, some accomplishment and somebody just, yeah, that's really nice. You know, or maybe you've given that nod of approval before. Now, I often ask the same question whenever I, whenever I teach this to our students, and I'm going to ask you this question as well. When was the last time that you made God marvel? When was the last time that you made God marvel? 
See, in the majority of instances when the request of healing was made to Jesus, the people would plead for his presence, believing that Christ had to be in the, in the same vicinity as the sick. You know, they would come and say, Lord, please come with me. This is one of the few occasions that the centurion actually had full confidence that Christ could perform the miracle with just a word. In fact, his testimony or his acknowledgement of Christ's authority gave an example of faith that had not yet been seen in Jesus' ministry up to this point. And that's what his testimony is. A testimony is an acknowledgement or belief in facts or truth. And so when we share our testimony of the Lord's work in our lives, it should be so that people listening to our witness wonder about the God that we serve to the point of admiration and hopefully belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But our testimony cannot be about ourselves. You know, when the centurion shared his faith, he wasn't making it about himself. He was making it about the Lord. And that's what we should be doing. If we strive to ensure that we are known by our faith and not by our names, then we can take the attention away from Christ. If we are so focused on ensuring that everybody who sees us knows that it's us giving the witness or us giving the testimony, then the focus is no longer on the Lord where it should be. We need to keep the focus on Christ when we share our testimony with others, when we are a witness. Because it's okay if they don't know who we are. As long as by the end of the time they meet us, they know Christ. And so we can be anonymous in our testimony to Christ. Second example of how we can be anonymous in our faith is through our service for Christ. And this is actually the example of the woman that we see later on in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse number 36. So just fast forward a few verses in the same chapter, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse number 36. The example of the woman. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman of the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, to clarify, this is actually the first of three occasions in the scriptures that the, that the scriptures record in which women anointed the head of Jesus and washed his feet. The next instance is recorded in John chapter 12 by Mary of Bethany. This is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. While the third is by another unnamed woman recorded in both Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 after his triumphal entry. Now the washing of one's feet upon entrance to a home was common in biblical times as many people wore sandals or walked barefoot. And of course they did not have you know, paved roads most places, it was dusty, and so whenever you traveled, you would have dusty feet, dirty feet, and you would not want to have that in your house. Uh, be very common practice of our day would be taking your shoes off when you enter into someone's home. I don't know how many of you do that. We try to do that because we don't want our dirty shoes, you know, going over our nice clean floors. Now, in the average home, average biblical home, I should clarify, the host would provide a basin of water for the guests to wash their own feet. Now, if the host was wealthier, then they would have their servants wash their feet. 
Now, I don't, know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I cannot stand someone else touching my feet. So it would always have to be me washing the feet. Like, I can give my wife a foot massage every night and be fine. I can touch her feet. Her feet are perfect. But she cannot touch my feet. I do not want her to touch my feet. My feet smell. And so we'll just go away from that. So, but the washing of feet, the washing of feet was often considered the lowliest of services to perform. In fact, usually the, like the lowest of servants would be the ones doing this. And it required a great sense of humility, which is why I think in John 13, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, it shows the greatest example of service that one can do. Now, there are two reactions to the woman's service that we see, beginning in verse number 39. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this, this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering and said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And Jesus answered unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that hath forgiven sin, forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Now as Simon judged a woman for her service, saying, you know, if he knew what man or woman she was, he would not let her touch his feet. Jesus reminded Simon of his own hypocrisy. It would not have been an accident, because Jesus reminds Simon of this, it would not have been an accident for a Pharisee to neglect offering of water to a guest at a dinner party, especially considering their claims to good hygiene. In fact, I would confer with uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, where they rebuked Jesus for not having his disciples wash their hands before breaking bread. They were big into hygiene. They were big into physical cleanliness. So for Simon to refuse water for Jesus, to wash his feet, is indication of a blatant disrespect towards the Lord. More than likely, the invitation to dinner was only given as a means to debate Christ on his teachings, which is what the Pharisees did on a regular basis. So this was all for show. But Jesus' response to the woman was that of love and respect towards her selflessness. He received her service as the sacrifice that it was meant to be. What we do for the Lord, what we do in our service to him, should be for the honor of his name and for the sake of his glory. 
Our works as born-again believers are to magnify his name above our own. Because it is not for our credit, it is for God. A simple definition that we often give to our students, what it means to glorify God is to make God look good. That is our purposes as Christians. We are to make God look good with everything that we do. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in several of his epistles, I'm going to give you a list of different verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then Colossians 3, 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. It is not to do all in the name of Paul and Jesus. It is to do all in the name of Jesus alone. He is the one that we are to give service to. And it does not matter if our name is mentioned. It does not matter if we receive the thanks or we receive the credit. It all goes back to Christ. Christ should be the center and the focus of all that we do. How should our faith be anonymous? It should be anonymous through our testimony to the Lord and it should be anonymous through our service for the Lord. Not about ourselves, it is about Christ. Not to make a name for ourselves, but to magnify the name above all names. And as we close, I would like to actually recite a poem that I believe captures our world's current attitude towards making a name. Now some of you may be familiar with this piece. It was originally written in 1818, so over 200 years ago, by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It is entitled Osmandius. So I want you to listen to these words. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that a sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. You know, the world would have us believe that the whole purpose of life is to make a name for ourselves. To pursue recognition, to pursue fame for our accomplishments at any cost and at any price. But anything done for ourselves will collapse into ruin once we leave this earth. And it will be swept away by the sands of time until it is all forgotten. That is why it is vital for humanity to put their faith in something beyond this world and beyond this life, to pursue that which will last 
for eternity. That something is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son. As the Apostle Peter states in Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so this next point is for anyone, whether it's here in the audience, watching on our live stream, if you have never yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, tonight is the night to do so. In fact, the steps are easy. They're as easy as ABC. The first step is admit. Admit that you're a sinner. That's actually probably one of the hardest parts to do because it takes a step of humility to admit that you are a sinner. But the Bible is clear that we have all have sinned. As Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the hardest part. But once you get through that point, you can move on to the next step, which is believe. Believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sins. Not just a portion, but for all of it. To put your total trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation and to realize that Jesus paid the price for your sins on the cross. The most famous verse in all the scriptures is probably John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So once you admit and then believe, the next step is to confess that Jesus is Lord of your life. To confess Jesus by your mouth and believe in Jesus with your heart. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We heard already that down in Sagmont, six students have already done that tonight, or already done that this week. We're praying that more will come this evening and tomorrow and even before they leave on Friday. If students can do it, if children can do it, then anybody can do it. It is an open invitation for any and all who are willing to receive it. And if you, for those of you who are listening, if they want to know more about what it means to be saved, especially on our live stream, they can get in touch with us here at the church. But now, I ask, and I talk to my dear fellow believers, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, where is the focus of your faith? Where do you put the emphasis on your faith? Are you striving to make a name for yourself as well in the world? Or are you committed to glorify the name of Christ in your testimony and in your service? It can be a slippery slope. You know, Christians have the same pool for fame and for popularity as the rest of the world. And sometimes we can be guilty of using even the pulpit to try to gain popularity for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. And many pastors and many churches have fallen into that. I hope that you're not one of them. I would like to remind you what John the Baptist said in regards to his relationship with the Lord when people were asking and wondering why he wasn't trying to gain more disciples or why he wasn't trying to bring some disciples back who had decided to follow after Jesus. He says in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Though the world may never know our names, we will be remembered in eternity. And so my encouragement to you is that we ever increasingly lift up the name of Christ, even 
if we remain anonymous.